And we start at the beginning. And that's where John started. The Word became flesh. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. There is nothing more beautiful than a sunrise over the horizon. This is true whether that sunrise is seen from a plane, a ship or on the land. Watching the sun's triumphant conquest of the land or ocean is a thrilling sight. But Walter Chalmers has written in a beautiful hymn of another kind of light, the light that surrounds God, making him hid from our eyes. You know the hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, In Light, Inaccessible, Hid from Our Eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty victorious, thy great name we praise. The first chapter of John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the light, the light that gives life. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world and in him was life and that life was the light of men. From the last time I was here, John had made it clear that his purpose in writing these letters, and especially this first letter, the first letter of John, which I ask you to have your Bibles open so that we can work our way through that. So John has made it clear that his purpose in writing this letter is to bring his readers into fellowship with God and into fellowship with other believers. He now proceeds to explain to his hearers from the nature of God the conditions of fellowship. You remember last time we were talking about the fellowship of believers, fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. That is how us Christians should be. So John was 
trying to describe how a Christian community would look. That men and women from outside that community would look into that community and see something different. A new way of forming relationships, of binding people together, fellowship with themselves and fellowship with their Lord and God. We now let's look, we now look at the next three verses of that letter, verses five to seven, which tell us that number one, verse five, God is light. In verse six, that we can deceive ourselves, but in verse seven, we can have fellowship if we walk in the light. So let's look at verse five. This is the message. And that marks out what follows as important. Indeed, it sums up the Christian message. From him. That's what it says. This is the message from him. Refers to Jesus Christ. And then John links the negative to the positive. In him there is no darkness. No darkness at all. Against God is light. Now God is light and light, light occurs often in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, it mostly refers to Jesus Christ, God's son. But in this letter, light refers to God the father rather than Jesus the son. To say, <coughs> to say that God is light is to draw attention to his uprightness, his righteousness. Light is the natural symbol for attractive righteousness, just as darkness is the blackness of sin. There is an emphatic double negative with darkness. There is no darkness, whatever, in God. He is all light. So God is not only all right, he is all light. There is probably also the thought here that our lives are exposed to the illumination that streams from God. Nothing is hid from God. Look at Psalm 80 and verse 8. Nothing is hid from God. Because God is light, it is important that his people walk in the light. Look at verse 6. John now goes on to deal with obstacles to fellowship. And the first of these is that words alone do not bring fellowship with God. If anyone just claims to have this fellowship but yet continues to walk in the darkness, then since God is light, that person lies. The error that John is denouncing here is that of refusing to accept the light that God has given us through the revelation of the prophets, the apostles and others, preferring instead the darkness of one's own ways. So that's what humans tend to do. They tend to reject the light of God, preferring instead the darkness of their own ways. 
This is driven home with the statement, we do not live by the truth. We deceive ourselves, don't we? We tell a lie. We do not live by the truth. The truth that God has made known must be lived out in the lives of his servants. Look at verse 7. Now comes the contrary supposition that we really walk in the light and we should walk in the light. And why do we use this term walk? God uses that term because walking is a metaphor for the whole way of life. It brings about the truth that Christians should make steady, if unspectacular, progress. To walk in the light. To walk in the light is to live righteously day by day. And that is reinforced in the strongest way possible when John says, as he is in the light, meaning God. Walk in the light as God is in the light. The Christian is the servant of God. And thus his standards are God's standards. We expect John to now say that we have fellowship with God, but instead he states that those who walk in the light will have fellowship with one another. Of course, we will have fellowship with God, as we saw earlier in verse 3. But John is telling us here the truth, that the fellowship believers enjoy one with another is of great worth. And to this he adds, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And purifies is in a continuous tense. It contains the thought of a purification that doesn't take place once and for all. No. It is a day-to-day, day-by-day process. It is a day-by-day cleansing of each one of us as we call ourselves Christians, as we strive to walk in the light. And this cleansing comes from the atoning death of Jesus Christ and the blood. The blood does not mean that life is released from the flesh, no. But life yielded up in death for us to take away our sin, that we might now walk in the light. So let us look at this thing called light. We know that it is the opposite to darkness. But let us look at light. First of all, we will look at the nature of light. And light is the life-giving force of the universe. God's first words in the creation were, let there be light. And there was light. This single act, God spoke and there was light. This single act, made life possible. And light still gives life today. Light is light making. Light does not dwell alone, but shares itself, making other elements light. So, that's the nature of light. Secondly, let's look at our relationship with light. 
If we can be related to light, we can be related to God because God is light. God can be known here and now under the conditions and limitations of our human lives. His nature is light, which communicates itself to people made in his image until they are transformed into his likeness. Of course, we can also be related to darkness. It is our choice. Try turning out the light in a room and relate to the darkness. Pull the covers up over your head in bed and relate to the darkness. The Apostle John in his Gospel wrote, and he wrote very truly, Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Chapter 3, verse 19. We would do well to remember that. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In my view, that also dispels the theory of evolution because man is not getting any better as the evolutionists would like us to believe. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. When left to their own devices, men descend into evil. They do not get better. No matter how much the evolutionists will tell us that we are all getting better, I beg to differ. We must be able to tell the difference between light and darkness. It is tragic when a person is blind to both. Jesus spoke of a sin that had no forgiveness. Is self-imposed darkness a manifestation of that sin? So, we have looked at the nature of light. We have looked at our relationship with light. So we can choose. We can be related to light or we can choose darkness. Let's look thirdly at psychological and practical aspects of light. A psychological, a psychology, sorry, a psychology of darkness. So if a man has a psychology of darkness, it involves three denials. Just as a psychology of light involves three affirmations. So first of all, darkness involves the denying, the denial of the bearing of moral conduct on spiritual communion. The unbelieving person speaks irresponsibly. God won't mind. God loves us so much that he will overlook anything we do. But can he? He cannot. God is light. So, first of all, the denying of moral conduct. Darkness, secondly, involves the denial of the responsibility for sinful actions. I won't get hooked. Or perhaps the person will say in self-deception, I have no sin. I'll just do this little thing. It it won't hurt anyone. 
now. So first of all, we deny moral conduct and now we deny responsibility for sinful action. And thirdly, darkness involves the denial of the actual fact of having sinned. I'm not guilty. How many prisoners are sitting in our prison saying, I'm not guilty? The scripture makes one interesting distinction. Some will say, I have no sin. Others will say, I have not sinned. Sin has something to do with Adam and Eve, but, but not me. All three of these things are denial of light. We have denied the light. When we deny our moral conduct, we deny responsibility for sin and deny the actual fact of having sinned. All three of these are denials of the light. Turn it out, pull up the covers, close your eyes, but the light still shines. Let's look at a psychology of light. A psychology of light is more realistic, more positive, more affirming. Three affirmations are clear in the psychology of light. Number one, a fellowship, or our fellowship, has to do with practice as well as theory. This is the meaning of walking in the light. Those who continue to practice the works of darkness cannot be in fellowship with the light. God is light. And obedience involves walking in the light with him. The strains of trust and obey harmonise well with this concept. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. It is not enough to wish for such fellowship or to think about such fellowship. The fellowship is based on sound moral principles. You and I have to work at it. We as Christians have to work at it. The second affirmation is that God is light and light is in the business of putting out the darkness. When did darkness ever succeed in putting out light? Does not sin belong to the realm of darkness? So forgiveness, forgiveness accomplishes it accomplishes the removal of sin insofar as light is concerned. Forgiveness is like turning on the light. Sin is not concealed or denied. It is acknowledged, forgiveness is sought, and the light shines. In darkness, the person says, I have sinned, help me. It's what the tax man said in the temple that day beside the Pharisee, when the Pharisee beat his chest and said, thank God I'm not like that tax man over there, while the tax man knelt in humility, in humility and would not raise his head and said, Lord, help me. Help me a poor sinner. So, forgiveness turns on the light. Sin is not concealed. It is acknowledged Forgiveness is sought and the light shines. God is light 
and it is to God that we turn when sin's responsibility finally dawns on us. Sin belongs to darkness. Forgiveness belongs to light. God is light and light is powerful. God made it that way. And the third affirmation is understanding. The one quest of any sort of psychology is self-understanding. We've heard all these psychologists and that saying is, you've got to find yourself. How many people have you heard, and especially during the 60s and 70s in which I grew up, people went off to find themselves? I could never understand that, how people went off to find themselves. Weren't they here? In here? So one quest of psychology is self-understanding. And we know, as Christians, that light makes that possible. Darkness concerns deception. And I think that's what people went off and found. Because it was a trick of the devil. A trick of the evil one. Get somebody concentrating on anything else but God. Come on, you've got to go on this journey and go up the mountain and speak to the guru and he'll tell you the meaning of life. But don't go to the Bible because you might find out what it, re- what, what it really is like. That is a trick of the evil one. Darkness concerns deception. But light makes understanding possible. Light concerns honesty. Walking in the light adds to your perception and helps you to reckon honestly with yourself. That's why we've got a conscience. Men don't really need to read the Bible, but I want them to, and you want them to, we all want them to. They only have to look around the world at nature. Go back to Romans. Paul told us, didn't he? Men are without reason. Men are without reason for not understanding because they only have to look at this world and they see evidence of God. They know. And men will run to the farthest corners of the earth to escape from what they know is already here. That little part in their heart that can only be filled by one thing and one thing only. We might try to fill it with Riches, we might try to fill it with a thought pattern or Buddhism or whatever else it is. We might fill it with drugs, we might fill it with alcohol. But we know it can only be filled with light, the light of God. Walking in the light gives us the perception to reckon honestly with ourselves. To use, God's, to use John's language, are there Christians in our churches who are walking in darkness and still claim to have a profound intimacy with God? These are not fallen Christians. These are keenly religious people whose spiritual zeal is impressive but whose instinct for truth is sorely damaged. And this begs us to ask three questions. 
Are we taking the darkness seriously? Do I take the darkness seriously? Do you take the darkness seriously? That is, are we ready to admit that our congregations may contain men and women who have departed from the faith? This is the full scope of John's notion of darkness. And he is pretty serious about it. And do we look the other way in such cases? We have to be impressed with the boldness and the courage of John because in these verses he is willing to risk warning his fellow believers. Imagine that young church in the first century the first century church would have been, well, in our eyes, should have been so strong and so, so firm for God. Some of us probably think today they must have been so much stronger than we can ever be because they were so close to when Jesus walked the earth. They still had the men there that worked, walked with him and touched him and felt him and hear him. But John had to tell them, hang on, we're only 30 years down the track. It's only been a couple of decades since they put our Lord to death. And you are in danger of falling. So John was pretty brave and pretty bold to warn his fellow believers and he had to because, as I said last time I was here, there were these people who were getting around saying that there was no connection between the body and the soul. And the body could run off and do whatever it wanted to do. They were called Gnostics. And they had this wonderful thing that the body could run off and do whatever it wanted and the soul would still be fine. But you and I know, when you do something wrong, your body might suffer but your soul suffers too, doesn't it? They are not distinct. They are not apart. They are joined. You know, we might if we do something wrong, we may suffer health-wise, but we also suffer in here, in our heart, because we know we've made God sad, haven't we? Because we've strayed from the path. There is risk in such a warning given from John because those who have embraced unorthodox theological ideas, they will argue, they will argue that they are spiritually very much alive. And John addresses this problem head on. With these people, John would have named the darkness, named the sin, diagnosed the problem and given them a remedy. He probably would have pointed the man out or the person out in the congregation. God forbid if we did something like that today, how unpolitically correct that would be. But are we letting things go by, as I said early, earlier? Do we look the other way? As Christian leaders, we are called to protect our sheep. And this means calling the darkness what it is. Religious darkness is all the more insidious because it clothes itself in a purity that cannot always be recognised 
and cannot be recognised by its victims and maybe those around them. We must mobilise to identify it and defend our sheep against it. So, that's our first question. Do you and I take the darkness seriously? Do we think the devil is just this little red painted man with horns and a tail and a little red pitchfork and he doesn't look very harmless? He doesn't look very harmful, does he? Do we take the darkness seriously? Second question is, does spiritual righteousness lead to separation? That is within the church. That is, if we are mature in Christ, if we enjoy a holy and excellent walk with the Lord and are immersed powerfully in the spirit, should this lead us to separate ourselves from other Christians? I am not concerned here with our obligation to remain separate from the world. No. Christ told us we are to be in the world but separate from it. What I'm saying here is what I have in mind is that mature Christians who have cultivated an elitist view of their place in the body of Christ. A more, what is it, holier-than-thou attitude. And they form little cliques of their own. But John's test is sure. Those who draw near to Christ, who walk in the light, work hard to cultivate the fellowship of the body, the fellowship of the whole congregation, regardless of their spiritual age. We've talked about it often, haven't we? The spiritual walk of a person, where some are more advanced than others. But we are to, in John's words, to have a fellowship of the whole body, regardless of whether someone is a new Christian or someone who has been a Christian for 40 years, 50 years, 80 years, whatever. We are all at different stages, but we are all part of the body. And lastly, we must ask the third question. Is the forgiveness of God in Christ at the centre of our fellowship? Those who walk in the light have an ongoing sense of needing forgiveness and being forgiven. When purity is a gift, when the mercy and grace of God are foremost in our experiences, spiritual arrogance and elitism dies. We cannot criticise those whose growth is less than ours because were it not for the grace of God, we would be immature as well. When the community is forged in the context of grace, generosity and mercy become commonplace. Living blinded by the darkness, spiritual elitism that damages fellowship and the absence of a need for forgiveness... All these three are connected. All these three are connected. Living blinded by the darkness. Spiritual elitism that damages the fellowship 
and the absence of a need for forgiveness are connected. They spring from a religious experience that cultivates our pride. Pride. Ooh, the sin of pride. The sinister side of this pride is that sincere Christians can deceive themselves. Like wolves in sheep's clothing, darkness covers its victims in false light. These Christians convince themselves that they are stronger than the darkness and misplaced pride brings ruin. The deception one can live with and the rationalisation one can accept builds a harrowing picture of the darkness of sin. So it is good for you and I to give darkness a closer definition. It includes wrong doctrine and also includes the power of the evil one. He is not equal to God, but he has power. Remember that. If you've got the time, read Job and you will see that he has power. But it is given to him by God. So he is not equal with God. Do not ever think that. God is triumphant. There is not these equal forces of evil and good. Good far outweighs evil. But he does have power. And if we want to go off and be a lone ranger, then he will get us. He will snipe us. He will, as they do in war, snipe off that one that's out there on his own rather than attack the whole group. So do not be, go off and be a lone ranger. So darkness includes wrong doctrine, the power of the evil one, and it denies the truth of God and forbids his light. Forbids his light to enter. Darkness is where God cannot be found. Just imagine when we're in eternity and the light from the throne, there will be no darkness there. Darkness will be gone forever. Darkness is where God cannot be found. Satan creates darkness and he is its prince. But we are capable of doing the same thing through our fallen choices, our deception of ourselves and others, and our sinfulness. Before long we become so accustomed to the darkness that we forget what true light really is. In conclusion, John is looking for a model of Christian life that is like a circle of light on a stage. And I'm sure most of you have seen that. When the spotlight comes on a darkened stage, perhaps before as the curtain goes up at the start of the play or whatever, there it is, a spotlight in a darkened theatre. At once, the darkness around it is most prominent. We can see it, can't we? We can see that brilliant shaft of light, light and the circle of light on the stage, but the darkness is around it and is prominent. A boundary is evident, and yet the circle is created by God's penetrating light. It is a light that is pure. It is a light that is hard, revealing, and it is a, it is a light that is guiding. And those who walk in the light discover lives that are knit together by God's forgiveness and redemption. To walk in this light is ultimately humbling. 
But at the same time, it is also healing, renewing and invigorating. Our universe is one of light and warmth. It is not one of cold indifference, darkness and hostility. Even the mists of anger, prejudice and fear are done away with in the light. Light expresses not only purity and holiness, but also the concepts of God's self-revealing and his self-giving goodness. As it is the nature of light to shine, so it is the nature of God to give and to bless. He gives life and he gives light to all who will receive them, to all those who will walk in the light, who will accept his forgiveness, who will be honest with themselves. They will become light. You too may become light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that you are the light and the life of the world. Oh God, we thank you for those immortal words that are in the first verses of Genesis. In the beginning was the, the word, in the beginning God. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Heavenly Father, we cannot imagine a world of darkness. For we know that in a world of darkness, nothing would grow, nothing would have light. So God, we praise you for the light that you give us each and every day. We thank you for our sun that shines on this earth and gives it the light of life. Oh God, we know how much more light you are than our sun. It is just such a pure, it is just such a, well, it's so minuscule beside the light that you will produce. And we long for that light. We want to be the light of the world. Help us, Lord, as we go from this place to be the witnesses you want us to be, to be the light in this community that you want us to be, to light up the world. Let us never hide under a bush, but, Lord, let our light shine so that all men may see it and be attracted to it. And we may give them then the reason for our joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.